Broadsheet Radio Network. Romans countrymen, lend us your ears for another episode of Shared History. This is your history on drugs. (laughs) (laughs) I did just take some Dayquil, so that's accurate. You just took Dayquil, Natalie, at 730. Uh, Listen, when you (laughs) go hard. (laughs) Oh, man, I just saw something recently on TikTok that explained how cheese is, is drugs. Cheese is drugs. Cheese is drugs. Mm-hmm. It does. It has. You have the same physical reaction to alcohol, drugs, and sex as you do to cheese. And I'm I, like, I get sense. it. I get, I get it. it. These Midwesterners understand. <laughs> we get oh it. man, that reminds me of the greatest gift that Yahoo Answers has ever given us, other than the joy that is. Anytime somebody says, tries to write, am I pregnant into Yahoo Answers, but spells pregnant <laughs> wrong. Uh, that's that's the number one joy that Yahoo Answers ever gave Obviously. Me. The other one is at some point, somebody asked Yahoo Answers, how many bread to get drunk? And somebody answered, <laughs> somebody answered three bread. So anytime, anytime uh, Justin or I have had like, a couple drinks or one of us has like a beer and is eating pizza we'll be like hey slow down that's two bread natalie i think cash showed up to work drunk what do you mean <laughs> no she just had three bread <laughs> had three bread at breakfast three <laughs> breakfast bread wow yeah man i uh i'm not bread drunk but i wish i was i love bread i love, I love bread i just love bread I love, that's all i love bread i'm very excited to be here with you this evening cass I'm so excited to be. Oh, for like a specific reason, or are you just like oh, me? No, just in general. But I, oh, okay. I am sick, and then Cass joined the call, also <laughs> sick. And uh, Justin was making fun of me before we started recording, where he just was like, "Gonna go do it sick." That's the Natalie way, just doing the things. <laughs> I'm like allergy sick, so my I'm just crying, and I'm like dabbing my eyes with tissues like an old lady. I'm to be sniffling. Fair, you do that while we record anyway, because you just get really emotional about I history. I just love history, and I especially love bread drunk history on drugs. So, so there's a lot of sniffling. There's a lot of yawning because I haven't been sleeping. There's going to be there's some sniffling for you there. I told Natalie, because we're on Zoom, so she can see my face. I am happy to be here. I am, and I'm excited about our topics. I will not look excited just because my face physically can only look sick. So listeners, if this unhinged conversation at the beginning of this episode is any indication, you're in for a treat. (laughs) But I'm really excited because Cass and I haven't recorded just an episode, just the two of us in a minute. God, it has been a while. And so I'm very, I sick illness aside, very excited to uh, to play with you this evening. We're gonna power through this, and and you know what? I would love to get us kicked off. Get us kicked off. I don't want to get us kicked off anything. Yeah, I would love to kick us off. Here we go, here we go friends. It's starting. <laughs> so excited to get going here. Okay, my topic. I have an amazing composer for us. Yes, bring the music. Yes. Last season, I told you about Joseph Ballone, who was the, and cringy, who was the Black Mozart, which we hate that name because he's not the Black Mozart. He's Joseph Ballone. And I have another composer for you that they call Black Mahler. And I don't like that because he's not the Black Mahler. He is the Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Ooh, I love a triple name. Which I guarantee you is going to confuse me because he was named after the poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Just like flip-flopped? Yeah, it just flip-flopped it. So Samuel Coleridge Taylor was born in August 1875. Great month. Leo. We love a Leo. He was born in London. His father was 
the son of African-American slaves who then went back to Sierra Leone because liberated slaves, some of them went back to Sierra Leone, which was kind of a, a place of liberation for freed slaves. So dad's from Sierra Leone. Mom was from London. His father was actually a doctor like for the country. He had some like super high powered doctory job. Um, and so he, you know, the doctory jobs. Yeah, uh, very familiar. Absolutely. And he went to London. He was doing doctory shit up there. And he met Samuel Coleridge Taylor's. That's going to, man, that is really going to get me. As a, little, as a little lit nerd baby, you're going to be struggling. If Yeah. I mean, I'm already sick on top of it. So I might just call him Sam. <laughs> good old Sammy. Good old Sammy. Sam's dad, Daniel Peter Hughes Taylor. That's why the name was flipped because his last name is Taylor. So they just called him Samuel Coleridge. Samuel Coleridge Taylor. Samuel Taylor. It's, it's it, a lot. It feels rude. It's it feel like namesake. It's a lot for my brain to do right now. <laughs> but um, Daniel Taylor uh, was working in London. He was like an administrator in West Africa. Uh, and he met Samuel's mom, Alice Martin. They had this love affair. Yeah, da, 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 da. Daniel had to go back to Sierra Leone. Did not know mom was pregnant. Oops. Oh, no. Oops. Um, not so good at the doctory shit then, eh? <laughs> no. No. So Samuel grew up in London with his mother and his grandfather and um, knew about his dad and his dad's uh, history and heritage. I don't know how much of it he knew until what age, but it influenced a lot of his um, music and his compositions. His grandfather, Alice's father, played the violin. He came from a very musical family and he picked up the violin and the piano really well. So they got him enrolled in the Royal Music Academy can I ask a question? Yeah. Is Alice white? Alice is white. Okay. Yes. I should have said that. I, I, the way that you said something made me assume as much, but I, then I was like checking my assumption to be like, yes, sorry. So yes, he was, he was, um, of mixed race, uh, Sierra Leonean and white British. British. He referred to himself as Anglo African. That's how he chose to identify and be called it was not easy for a black man to be you know just existing at this time in a white society but he was so talented he enrolled in the royal college of music and was just like kind of crushing it and being awesome he immediately switched over to composition um instead of studying violin because he was just like really good at that he had a mentor Charles Villiers Stanford, kind of just like an embarrassing amount of talent. And it was just like, oh, he did this. He premiered this one show and all these critics like, oh, my God, he's so good. And all these famous composers and famous musicians were like, wow, he's kind of a genius, isn't he? Want to come work with me? And he had all of these like amazingly impressive, intense mentors. He eventually became a professor at the Crystal Palace School of Music at this time when he got into more of his composing, he became very interested in his father's heritage, particularly the aspect of being a freed slave in the United States and choosing to return to Africa. He started incorporating African music and beats in his music, which was extremely progressive. He likened it to Brahms who incorporated Hungarian music, Hungarian folk music with highbrow classical music and Dvorak who did the same with Bohemian music. If y'all remember back to our Chopin episode, um, Chopin did this and it was extremely progressive at the time. He was integrating Polish folk music with classical music. I mean, listening to it now, you probably wouldn't be able to pick it out because it all just sounds like classical music but because well, now that's like what in our brain classical exactly is, is like exactly chopin's classical from. yes yeah so but putting those two seemingly crazily different sounds together 
was hugely progressive. So, and Brahms, uh, listeners, to give you kind of like I know we don't believe we don't believe in dates, but Brahms oh, yeah. and uh, Brahms and Collard's Taylor are kind of performing around the same time. Like Brahms mm -hmm. already would have had his, but we're late nineteenth century. Yeah. Thank you, Natalie. Versus, versus Chopin's Chopin. I mean, Chopin died in the middle of the 19th century. So Chopin's yeah. early 19th century. Yeah. He's like his hot, when all of his hot, hot. hot releases came out. Hot stuff, his dropping, dropping yeah. singles. So yeah, so he started incorporating African beats and music into his compositions. He became fascinated with the Song of Hiawatha, which was a poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. It was this fictional story of um, Hiawatha, who was like a Native American hero. His, his tragic love with Minnehaha, who was a Dakota woman. Um, it was just this famous epic poem who he loved the poem so much. So it's actually one of his most famous pieces where he put the poem to music. And like just dropping banger after banger after banger. Now, we all know that, you know, fledgling compositional musicians in the early 1900s just made bank, right, oh, Natalie? Yeah, they were raking it in. Rolling in the dough. He grew he grew up in a in a poor family. Honestly, I don't even know how they got him in Royal College of Music, because I don't think that was easy to get in. And I'm sure it was expensive. But it sounds um, like talented as hell. So was the Royal College was lucky to have him. Fuck. Yes, absolutely. But he didn't come from a lot of money. And then he picked <laughs> such a lucrative profession. Gotcha. Uh, in order to make ends meet, he would sell his compositions without a copyright. He's like, I need money now. So here's my composition. Great. I get 15 guineas. Awesome. Well, Song of Hiawatha sold hundreds of thousands of copies. He saw no royalties. No. But it was one of those, like, I need to eat today. Yeah, he was so... like, it's my money and I need cash now. <laughs> <laughs> he met his wife, Jessie Walmsley, who was a white woman, um, while he was in the Royal College of Music. She was a fellow student. She was studying music. Um, her parents, not too keen on her marrying a man who was mixed race. They said some horrible things. Um, I'm very surprised. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was, they were not nice. I have some things that they said that I almost just don't want to read. Like, they said he's going to take you back to the dark continent and have you dance, you know, naked in, in loincloth. I'm Whoa. like, yo, y'all, come on. It was bad. It was, it was some bad stuff. But he was also like wildly popular at this time. So I don't know if it was partly that, that they came around to it, but they did end up going to the wedding and at least somewhat approving of the wedding. Um, Samuel and Jesse were like, madly in love with each other oh like madly in love he wrote several compositions that she sang along to and i think she sang is that what um, she was in school was that what she was in the in i think she was in Royal there College? for composition as okay. well but maybe it was singing but even even so she sang for this so he wrote this he composed this piece that she sang along to and like it slapped like it was awesome he ended up doing three tours of the united states due to his popularity teddy roosevelt invited him to the white house what yeah teddy wasn't super great at doing that with um black people back then so well, he also was... was like often too busy just thinking about who or what he could murder yes absolutely that was a big big part of his uh daily it was a big hobby. activity <laughs> Coleridge Taylor uh in his um tours of the United States he met with uh a lot of amazingly influential black artists W.E.B. Du Bois 
Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was a poet and a novelist. He participated as the youngest delegate of the first Pan-African Conference in 1900. So he was around a lot of these intellectuals, artists, progressive artists, people who are doing new things and have new ideas and challenging ideas. And he was like kind of there with it. And you know, it's weirdly a thing that my brain still, even though like it happens today, has a hard time wrapping around in history. Just like thinking about all of these like super influential or just like super talented and should should be better known uh, figures from from history, from various arts or whatnot, just mm -hmm. chilling, just hanging out. Like it takes me back to your episode on like French salon culture. Yeah. Ones in general, just to like, just thinking about, I mean, I don't want to bring up fucking Woody Allen, but like the, the scenes <laughs> in Midnight in Paris, where it's just like, oh yeah, all these people were in Paris at the same time. So it, to oh, it yeah. totally makes sense that all of these like, amazing like writers and artists would have just like known each other and hung out probably yeah like just thinking about that through the ages it's yeah. i've always delighted when we ha when when you tell me like oh yeah that he went on tour and he chilled with <laughs> he was just with chilling. roosevelt then he's like chilling with w-e-b uh yeah just my boy web he's just hanging web. out <laughs> Doing and that thing. still happens. Like it's, I know, we, we and we still don't. Are like what? AOC's it... friends with who? Like, oh, Cass, you definitely said something on this episode that was so on brand. What do you mean? You know, like you have a brand. The way you look and communicate, what you place value in, all of that is your brand. Just typical you being you. Oh. How do you know so much about brands? Oh, well, I've worked with Bates Marone Sweet Design. Who? Bates Marone. They're a boutique branding, marketing, and web design agency based in Chicago. They've got great strategists, designers, and copywriters who all work together to make brands better. How do they do that? They combine research and storytelling. They find out why a brand is the way that it is, and then they bundle all that up into a nice little package for the business to take with them and use going forward. Shoot, that sounds great. Right? Well, are they just for huge corporations though? Oh, absolutely not. They have experience with all sorts of clients from startups to Fortune 500 companies. Ooh, fancy. Mm-hmm. If you want to see some of their past client work, learn more about their processes, see what it takes to join the team, or if you're just ready to schedule a meeting, go to their website, BatesMarone.com. That's B-A-T-E-S-M-E-R-O-N.com. He had critical success right away, and some of the critiques were like so glowing, but with our modern lens, like so fucked up. Uh, there was one that said he elevates the common minstrelsy oh. of of blacks playing on bones and picking banjos and really is a great classical comp composer, just like other whites. I was like, oh, my God. I hate, I, I, oh. But like this but this this critique was going so hard and just like kissing his ass and like he's so good he's a genius he's doing these things but like you don't even realize how backhanded everything is yeah it's like just say he's good like ugh. Yeah. but it was he he faced a lot of a lot of racism but his merit just he was he was just really good it didn't really seem like that many people were trying to fight him on it because he was black you know i started following a black opera singer on Twitter, which is how I found Coleridge Taylor. Uh, it's Bob Batunde underscore hip hopra. He's a black opera singer and he talks about black classical singers, composers, performers, and the rich classical history that black artists have. There's, it's not the black Mahler. It's not the black Mozart. There were so many artists and I get so excited when I see someone like Samuel Coleridge Taylor because I I have not heard of a lot of these black classical artists and there's a lot of them and they were good and they were popular in their time thinking that these are all just kind of outliers or well this one guy did it 
I've really enjoyed following this gentleman's Instagram and TikTok because it is just like a mini shared history episode. Like every time I pull up his account and he just has so much information on all of these artists. And he talks a lot about being a black opera singer today. First of all, opera is seeming, people can seem so out of touch with it. It seems so ancient and old and different and white. Um, so him bringing in that aspect and reminding everyone that classical music is black music. You know, it's not white music that we let people in. There are some really phenomenal artists and I almost don't want to tell people to go find his Instagram because I have some more people from there that I want to talk more about and I don't want you guys to know, but you absolutely Wait, should go check out his Instagram and his TikTok. Yeah. Um, sorry, I felt a lot more prepared and then I got really excited and I just like <laughs> word vomited all of this out. That's why we love you. Though, Cass. <laughs> oh my God. Thank you. Uh, one really cool thing there was this this musical family uh that went viral a few years ago the kana masons they're a a black british family like disgustingly talented like it's obscene how talented this family is they are basically a full family like quintet they all play the cello violin piano viol like interchangeably pretty much and sheku kana mason who is, I believe, the oldest son, and he primarily plays cello. He took some of Coleridge Taylor's songs were African spirituals that he then composed classical music for. One of them was Deep River, and Coleridge Taylor initially composed it for the piano, and Sheku Kana Mason then adapted it for the cello and a full string section, I believe. And he plays on it with his brothers and sisters. And and in in the, like their viral video, mom and dad are playing with them too. But he did end up adapting Samuel Coleridge Taylor's version of Deep River. And it's beautiful and it's so cool to watch. And it's a beautiful song. And it's it's really interesting taking it an African spiritual or an African-American spiritual, which if you listen to it, you'll recognize it. And then mm -hmm. hearing the classical version of it, it's really cool. And I'm obsessed with this family and everything they do is just like, I, I just, I don't, I, it doesn't make sense. Stupid talented. I, I like to think of basically Samuel Coleridge Taylor and his family also just having jam sessions because Jesse, we know is a musician I did a quick Google because I, I forgot to, to tell you the best part. What well, go for it. Okay. So his most famous composition, the song of Hiawatha, he named his son Hiawatha and oh. Hiawatha was also a composer and his daughter Avril was also Avril a composer, obviously named oh. after Avril Lavigne. So they they literally are the Conamasons. Like they're just like this prodigal, prod, prodigal musical family composing and writing and playing and doing all this shit together. And they all love each other so much. He died of pneumonia in um, 1912. He was 37 year old, years old. They suspect that he literally worked himself to death. They had a lot of financial issues. He got pneumonia and he just could not recover. So it's like heartbreaking. Usually these famous people have like these horrible like marriages or they, you know, they treat their kids like shit or whatever. And it's like, he just loved his wife so much. And he, his kids were just like these amazing musicians who looked up to their dad. And then he had to go and fucking get pneumonia and die. He was an amazing musician, not necessarily the best businessman. <laughs> No, not a great businessman. Not a great businessman. Amazing musician. Not unlike us, he was sick. Yeah. See, it all comes back to us. Me. Us. <laughs> um, so, yeah. No, I I encourage everyone to go out, just YouTube, whatever. First of all, the Kana Masons, because they're amazing. They are. Um, and then. To watch. Yes. They're just so and talented. So talented. Even if you don't like classical music, they, you will. 
I'm just, you're wrong. You I, I'm sorry. It's impossible to not be interested while watching somebody play like a viola or a cello. Like my yeah. brain is like, and it's because I never played a string instrument, but I'm like, that's what, how it's, uh, it's, and it's beautiful and it's fascinating. I do think you need to watch string string performances because some people i get it you know violins are high pitch and whatnot but if you watch someone play it while you're listening it's a whole different experience it's phenomenal it is like a it is like watching ballet it is they're playing an instrument it's i don't know how else to describe it it's like you're watching you're watching them dance an instrument if that makes it's... sense get that big will hit me <laughs> Woo! You got your three breads in. <laughs> it's weirdly like elegant and dancey, but like violent and like they just move so fast when they when they pull their little bows. Um. So yeah. So sorry again. I I you get no order, no rhyme or reason. I just okay. exploded everything into the mic. I love Samuel. Coleridge Taylor. That's okay, Cass. We're gonna be equally chaotic today because I feel like you did a me. You chose like a a person, and you're like, I'm gonna talk about this person. Mm -hmm. I did a you because I went for something a little bit broader. <gasps> Ooh, it's gonna I be a little it. a little sloppy, mostly because I anticipate just getting excited about nerdy shit. Oh my god! Um, I honestly didn't wrong. think that I would tweak out as much as I did during that one. So well, I look away. forward to saying that I'm going to, and then us being utterly bored with me for the next <laughs> many minutes. But at the end of the day, Cass, there's one thing I know that we are both suckers for: tap dancing. <laughs> if it's tap dancing, I, I swear dancing. to God, damn it! <laughs> what else am I sucker for? A good story. I love a good story. Well, let me let me take you on a story of stories. Let me take you to early 19th century America. So we're kind of playing in the same uh, playing in the same century today. Perfect. We're, we're, we're getting our footing as a young nation, picking up momentum, picking up more territories, settling the West, creating new states, committing atrocities against the people and the creatures with a birthright to the landmass. And of course, picking fights amongst ourselves. That's what we were doing. This is just Woo! the context of what was happening early 19th century America, you know, famous for the Civil War. <laughs> Ever heard of it? But as America grows, its values shown. Mm. Two of these core values, which we know very well, even today, Cass, are of course, capitalism. capitalism? <laughs> And thus, the commercialization of art. In yes. this case, I'm talking about dime novels. <gasps> or also known across the pond as Penny Dreadfuls. Which, yes. first of all, much sexier name. Penny Dreadfuls? Much oh. sexier name than a dime novel. Also cheaper. <laughs> um, Penny Dreadfuls were probably known as Penny Dreadfuls, largely owing more to, like, I feel like Penny Dreadfuls had more macabre uh, topic mm. favored in the Brit version, like lots of gothic. Like, for example, uh, Jekyll and Hyde was originally serialized in a pen in Penny Dreadfuls, Varney the Vampire, The Feast of Blood and the Black Band, etc. Uh, so like Penny Dreadfuls, I feel like very much like kidnapping, poisonings, mm. larceny, murder. Bigamy. Yeah. Uh, bigamy and murder. Um, <laughs> Stories creatively pulling from like the gothic novel and like mm. macabre uh, folklore. They also had, so dime novels favored more like exactly what you expect of like early 19th century America, like cowboys, highwaymen, detective stories. And the mm. Brits had that too. It's, I just feel like that's more in line with what you would see if you look up old American dime novels. Yeah. Um, just in case listeners, you didn't know what a penny novel or a, a penny dreadful or a dime novel was just a little, just a little lesson. Um, they started to hit the market, both of them across the pond and, and here in America. Started... Also talk about inflation. They're only a penny yeah, right? in London and they're a dime in America. 
this capitalism. Uh, they they both start to hit the market in their respective territories in uh, the 1830s, but their heyday doesn't really kick off until the 1860s, especially in America, because at that point, the literacy rate had increased considerably. Um, thank you, social reform that included, you know, school reform and the enactment of a compulsory education law. Just more people could read. And when friggin' socialists. Well, and when it's a compulsory <laughs> education law where you're teaching, you're making sure that everyone, in theory, that everyone uh, is literate and everyone is taught, that means that like the unwashed mas masses now can read. And they don't care about your Wadsworth. How did you how did you know what they called me in college? The, un the, the unwashed, unwashed masses. <laughs> Oh, write that down. <laughs> That's what both of us are right now. <laughs> Cass, we have to take an ad break. Fair enough. But we're a history podcast, so we have to infuse this interlude with some tasty, tasty facts. Okay. Oh, tasty facts. Like brewing beer using hops became a standard practice as a result of early drug laws in Bohemia. Ah, yes. The Reinheitsgebot Law of 1560. I remember it well. Now that hops are no longer a legally required ingredient in beer, welcome to the future, our friends at Herbiary have taken it upon themselves to release your taste buds from the cages of convention. They've experimented with over 200 different herbs and botanicals, building on the rich tradition and fermented folklore of hop-free brewing. Learn more about their delicious section of brews and where to find them at herbiary.com. So they... they they really start to take off in the 1860s, and what they are, listeners, are their pocket-sized novels with illustrated, quote-unquote, story papers, essentially comics, and gossip, and jokes, and art, all stuffed in these, like, little tiny uh, pocket-sized novels alongside, like, serialized fiction stories. It's so, like a Bazooka Joe, but instead of on a wrapper, it's in a book. Exactly. They're just little booklets. <laughs> They're just early zines. Uh, <laughs> and they, they're, yes, we called them dime novels, but they ranged from like five cents to 15 cents each in a market where full books cost like a dollar to a dollar fifty, which was like completely unattainable for the working class mm. who can now read. Um, we're at a time now where reading isn't just for the aristocracy anymore, and especially not reading for pleasure because. Mm. Even when, even when the pores were a lot, were able to start reading, like they didn't have the time, and they weren't like pleasure reading. But now, in the uh, late nineteenth century, even even working class has time to not necessarily read for pleasure, but like they're com on their commutes and whatnot. Like mm -hmm. they have time; they are reading for pleasure. Um, and dime novels are also like. And Penny Dreadfuls are, everything about them is designed to cater to the public, which was kind of new in and of itself. Mm. Um, not only putting the audience in charge of driving mainstream American entertainment, but focusing on audiences of lower means in subject matter and in the cost to produce and to procure it. Like this was mm. inexpensive art. And also super notably for dime novels, especially targeting young audiences. This was kind of the first time that anything was written specifically for children. Mm. Not that all of them are, there's like genres within dime novels, but there is a whole swath of them that are, tar like uh, P.T. Barnum did like a series where he collaborated with authors to like have like fun stories about animals that also were like, mm, come to the circus. They were specifically targeting kids, and there wasn't art, quote-unquote, or entertainment targeting kids, really. Mm -hmm. Author Sarah Lindy called dime novels a method by which young boys could, quote, write themselves into adulthood. And indeed, if you, if you look at the popular topics and heroes in America, especially lots of cowboys, like I said, captains, detectives, damsels, that appears to be spot on. Uh, I don't know if that holds true so much with Penny Dreadfuls, because whereas boys were explicitly the target market for dime novels, Penny Dreadfuls, 
Penny Dreadfuls that I read, granted, they're all like monsters and vamp stories because that was the class that I was taking in college, <laughs> doesn't feel like it's targeting young boys. <laughs> I don't know. Anywho, according to a book called Dime Novels and the Roots of, Ameri of American Detective Fiction, which I, you know me, of course, meant I went and I tried to add it to my reading list, but it seems very difficult slash expensive to find. Nerd. Which is ironic, <laughs> though, considering the cost and proliferance of its subject matter. But according to this book, 50,000 dime novels were published between 1860 and 1915. So a little bit of history on, like, how they kind of got started, other than they're just being, you know, a bunch of poors who deserved books. Yes. The the first American public publishing house of the genre was run by... Oh, you know, we love we love some good names. The first name here is boring, but the rest of them are great. Robert Adams and Irwin and Erastus Beadle. Great name. What? That's like, no, no, that's those are Harry Potter characters. <laughs> Basically, it's spelled Beadle. It's B-E-A-D-L-E. -E. <laughs> uh, their first title was Anne S. Stevens Maleska, the Indian wife of the White Hunter, which was previously published in a magazine. So they got it kind of dirt cheap it had already been published and yes mm. you heard me right Anne s stevens a female author what i know women not only can they read now but also they can write <laughs> and we call that ladies and gentlemen a double threat yeah <laughs> Uh, dime novels were actually a very popular forum for women authors. They were kind of open to like any and all famous authors would use them as an outlet for like more popular adventure, something that they wouldn't necessarily write a full novel of, often under pen names. Mm -hmm. uh, but like I said, Beetle and Adams got Maleska for dirt cheap. They paired it with some dramatic illustrations and they eventually standardized the printing process to make mass production cheap and easy because America. Oh, cheap and easy cheap and easy mass production they called these publications beetles dime novels so there is your origin story for why they're called dime novels oh uh at some point adams and and the beetle bros have a big falling out and they go their separate ways who cares erwin beetle starts another publishing house and keeps the dime novels coming another publisher gets in the game um it's Street and Smith, and they're especially like prolific and really strict. Like they they went beyond standardizing the printing process to dictating plots, characters, and conventions to authors. So not necessarily creative. Not as nope. Not really. Not not the most <laughs> creative outlet, but efficient, I guess. Like if you're being like, here's yeah. the sandbox that you have to play in. Mm -hmm. Um. But other, other, there are other technological factors that contribute to the explosion in popularity. It's not just the fact that people, more people can read. Also, around this time, we have updated shipping methods so we can like get the people their books. We can do serialized stories without there being such a delay between issues. Mm. I mentioned people having a lot of time on their commutes public transit kind of becomes a thing at the end of the 19th century, which is, you know, where we read or listen to podcasts a lot. I mean, to the point that we, during, uh, during 2020, like audiobook audiences and podcast audiences like f fucking dropped. Cause that's where we, we do, we consume some, so much media sitting, trying to get from point A to point B. And then, a, a third technological factor that kind of uh, contributed to dime novels taking over is a shift of, this is really, feels like a really simple one, just the shift to oil lamps so we could read late at night. Yeah. More pleasure reading because there's just more hours in the day that we can do things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you really forget, like, I went camping this summer. You can't do shit when it's dark out. No. And it gets dark, like, like, darkness is dark it's like super dark i sounded super smart no but i mean like like natural lightness the amount of light you need to read comfortably like you run out of that real quick oh yeah so i can thank oil lamps for my recent bad sleep hygiene of staying up 
really late reading because you can go for, it's a slippery slope of an oil Ooh. lamp to a kindle paperwhite with a bat <laughs> uh oil lamps, oil lamps are like just helping dime novels catch fire um they were i don't know they're not they're, they weren't, uh, dime novels were not, not originally intended to present a new type of writing. And I think that mm -hmm. that's what's really interesting about it is that my knowledge of dime novels is very much like, oh, that was like its own genre, its own yeah. style. Um, but at the outset, the inv innovation was just the method and distribution. Mm -hmm. They became their own beast entirely. It yeah. became what I think of now when I think of dime novels or penny dreadfuls, which are like, Tales of Adventure and Folk yeah. like Buffalo Bill was an incredibly popular series by the especially prolific author Prentice Ingram, uh, who himself was a Confederate scout in the Civil War before his career, where he wrote up to 600 novels for Beatles. It's just like it became its own thing. Well, and I'm sure they're very author. like, like they're, they're very formulaic. And it's like, we've got our hero's journey. We've got do it in like 20 pages, right? Something like that. Yeah. Well, but it's like, and like the idea of if it's serialized, like writing with these cliffhangers, mm -hmm. and I don't know. I just, in my head, it is a specific genre. And I know that that's not accurate because what I think of as a Penny Dreadful, as I mentioned, are like the vamps and monster stories. Yeah. There's so much more than that, mm -hmm. but like it did become this sort of, shorter form, plainer language, uh, high octane adventure type stories, regardless of what kind of subgenre it fit in. And oh, and I, I mentioned female authors, female heroines were not completely unheard of either. There was one that I have to mention, because if you got a new nickname today, I get a new nickname today. And that is that there was a a very popular heroine named Nobby Nat. <laughs> Unwashed Cass and Nobby Nat. And she had a whip <laughs> and she rode side saddle and she <gasps> kicked ass. So Oh my gosh. Cool. All right, Nobster. <laughs> I like how phallic my nickname is, but I'll <laughs> Nobby Nat. Uh and then there were I I also mentioned like romance or not sorry, I mentioned dime novels like targeting uh, children, that was not exclusively the case. It's just that there were a huge chunk of them that did specifically target young audiences. Mm -hmm. They also, there was a whole subsect of them that specifically targeted female readers. Yeah. Um, according, like, I feel like a lot of people, if you say like dime store novel, you think of, I feel like you think of uh, like cowboys and highwaymen, one, as like one subsect specifically also for americans detectives noir-esque detectives type mm. adventures well not noir-esque because obviously we're we predate that right now and then you think of romance dime novel romances according to the women's the american women's dime novel project women's books were the first best sellers in america so Ooh. welcome you know what first we let them read then we let them dictate the market yeah and let me let them diddle themselves while they read <laughs> so when i think of comparing what a dime store novel it was then to like kind of what i was reading growing up choose your own adventures yeah like i like yeah choose your own fucking rl stein love choose your own adventures i feel like goosebumps and choose your own adventures feel very dime store like, like novel-y absolutely yes yeah. Um, just because I want to gloat that, um, quote women's books, uh, and we can, oh, I can, I can go down a rabbit hole of getting angry about the fact that there is a genre of literature known as women's fiction that just happens to be fiction with like a female pro tag. There's, I'm not talking about like literature or anything. I'm talking about literally just like <laughs> literature. I'm not talking about yeah. bodice rippers. I'm talking about just fiction. There is a woman where a woman so men has a keep walking. Yeah, you don't need this to is read this fiction. one. Drives me nuts. But regardless, if I want to rub some uh, some salt in the wound of women's books being the first bestsellers in America, let me uh, let me drop some drop 
drop some deets right now. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, author of The Scarlet Letter, a book that I recently found my copy from high school, and I was like, I can't donate this because I have defaced the cover of it. Um, <laughs> I hated that book. Is selling He's selling several thousand copies of his work. While dime novel author and, uh, Fanny Fern sold 70,000 copies of her book, Fern Leaves. Another author, Ruth Hall, sold over 50,000 copies in the first eight months of, of her book's publication. Holy shit. And previously, it was impressive to sell 2,000 copies. So the dudes are like, oh, 2,000, good job, old chap. And then Fanny Fern's like, hold my beer. She's like, hold my bodice. Hold my bodice, <laughs> hold my baby, hold my beer. I'm a salsa. <laughs> Um, 75% of books published in 1872 were written by women. So again, respectfully, suck it. <laughs> suck my quit. Mm -hmm. As, as with anything that it captures the attention of broad audiences, especially the working class folks worried that broad audiences, eh? Eh? <laughs> folks worried that dime novels and penny dreadfuls were a bad influence because God forbid we give anything, any entertainment to not just the aristocracy. The middle class did not like how popular dime novels had become. Anthony Comstock of anti-vice uh, Comstock law fame called them literary poison and evil reading because God forbid these books use unsophisticated language and portray women going after jobs. Nobby Nat was, was too independent. <laughs> but uh, frankly, the, the, the stories in dime novels tended to be pretty moralistic. They were all like good conquering bad and all that. Crime and vice were heavily featured, but they didn't go unpunished. Like the highwaymen were the bad guys. Like mm -hmm. the monsters were the bad guys. Also, it is such a integral part of American mythology. Yeah. American film. What are the stories we're telling in early film in current film we're having our heroes we're having our cowboys we're having our whether it's in space or in you know whatever genre it's in we we have a type americans do and so it's not metered verse or whatever it is american mythology and it's what we value and hold as like, i'm not saying that the romance trope of like the morally gray hot stud guy of today's romance didn't exist back then but i don't think that it really did like i feel no. we were we were i mean i guess like heathcliff but that wasn't that i would not call bronte a petty dreadful <laughs> uh but we all read between the lines in that one yeah but we're all like it is it is at the end of the day these these stories they were kept relatively simple in order to fit in the format that they were being mm -hmm. written for yeah who they were being consumed by, and that was to appeal to as large an audience as possible. And that yep. is that is like superhero tropes. That is like good conquering evil. That isn't, yeah. but you know, the middle class was like, how dare you have this thing? So dime novels were were banned and burned at one point in London. Seriously? And, yeah. Jeez. In London. There and is, there is this weird like classicism of the middle class are so, pissed off about they're so gatekeepy the middle class they're very gatekeepy to produce to protect what they see as the potential of them reaching the upper class yes if we we as the middle class need to elevate our thinking and and listen to and watch and read all the stuff that the fancy highfalutins are doing and if the lower classes start doing you know reading or reading in mass and they're not as highbrow it's gonna make the middle class look weird or bad it's like fuck off yeah it's all pull it's just pulling up that ladder behind, yeah behind us um but yeah in in london in the 1870s like the police were raiding the offices of penny dreadful publishers they were prosecuting folks under the obscene publications act which for listeners of under the kilt if you'll remember in john fairfield's episode of under the kilt the uh the cases or like the happenings of the 1980s that he's talking about kind of 
they hearkened back to the Obscene Publications Act as like their precedent for seizing uh, those movies and for saying that those movies were bad. So just a fun throwback. Um, and then as of World War II, dime novels seemed to lose their appeal, which is a little bit weird because they rose to popularity in the Civil War largely because they were of their size. They were so easy to slip mm -hmm. into a soldier's backpack. Yeah. So it seems slightly weird that then they would be put to bed in World War II, but I guess less. But with the rise of like film and everything, like everyone wanted yeah. to go watch movies. At the end of the day, we owe dime novels and penny dreadfuls uh, for the rise of genres like pulp, romance, detective or crime fiction, even sci-fi, like mm -hmm. that gave a lot of authors an opportunity to stretch themselves and it birthed a lot of uh high art honestly those genres bred high art in certain eras and whatnot or a petty a pape <laughs> well that's i don't know anything about like dime novels or penny dreadfuls I'm, i mean like i know what they are but i guess i never kind of put that together, that boom of literacy, dime store novels, commuting oil, like all of these, all of these things came together for this, this to take thing off to happen. The way that it did. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I, so I wasn't sure. So listeners, Cass is a big old lit nerd and is getting her teacher certificate so she could be a high school English teacher. Thank you. Uh, but like you're, you majored in literature, right? Yeah. So casted her undergrad in literature. So I was excited to be like, I have a literature topic, but one that I don't think that you know a lot about because we don't study it, but it is like, it does intersect with so many industrial mm -hmm. innovations and also like war and like all of these other things that it is like a very crossroads literature topic, historically mm -hmm. speaking. Yeah. The only reason I know an iota about it is because I took a class that I can't remember its sexy name, but its sexy name had something to do with like, it was like vamps and monsters and something else was what its sexy course catalog name was. But it was basically, it was a 19th century Brit lit class, like 19th century, like Gothic Brit lit class. And so we read Varney the Vampire because I think Varney the Vampire might be one of the earliest if not the first like vampire story published. Mm -hmm. And so we read like that and then we read like Mary Shelley and we read Wuthering Heights and we read like we we bounced around. We were reading full books, but when we read any of the shorter stories, we were told, oh, this was originally published serialized. This was originally published in a Penny Dreadful. Mm -hmm. Same with when we read Jekyll and Hyde. It was like, this is this yeah. was originally serialized. So that's the only reason that I know anything about it. Well, and a lot of a lot of novels that we think of as, you know, like highbrow literature or whatnot, like they started, they were serialized. Mm -hmm. And a lot of poets and authors who couldn't get published, they were making ends meet by doing these serialized things before they got their poem out or their novel right. or whatnot bringing it to i mentioned like sci-fi basically owing its rise in popularity and and whatnot as a genre to uh this type of literature one of my favorite books that i read last year that is a that is a newer novella was originally published serialized it's called beacon 23 and it's a novella and it's so good and it was originally serialized i read it as a completed compendium if you will of the, and it's still only novella length in in its collected form but like this is still how a lot of authors choose to shape their stories and distribute their stories and then mm -hmm. once they're done they'll be like okay yeah I'll like give it another round of editing and maybe put it out as like a novel or a novella but like how much literature anymore starts as fanfic so much so much or these zines uh, like that is now kind of the with the in our modern society 
it's get content out quick, get it out now, um, which doesn't diminish its its yeah uh, quality, but it's just a new way of producing and get not a it's not a new way. It's just a way of doing it. And yeah. there's a lot of like fanfic that like I know that it's easy to be like oh yes like Fifty Shades of Grey is Twilight was started as Twilight fanfic. Whenever I hear fanfic, that's all I think of is the like, love hypothesis was yes. started as uh, Kylo Ren and uh, Ray fanfic. But there's a lot of fanfic out there that like is just because they love the world of the characters and it's more like hobby and not like I'm gonna monetize this into a fully published book. Yeah, and that but that's that also. I feel like I feel like contemporary romance is really having a a cutback right now. Mm -hmm. uh, I blame the fact that we're just like all stressed to the high heavens and just want cotton candy, as as I call it. Yeah. Um, cotton candy is okay. Yeah, it can be. And you know, it's fun to be like, oh, well, that's like, I don't read crime thrillers. I don't read romance. I don't read pulp. But then to be now, you guys, if you feel like you have to defend what you're reading, which I don't think you do, if you're reading, I love you. Yeah. Um, you can defend it by being like, well, let me tell you about the fucking history of this genre. And let me tell you about dime novels. I feel like it was so cool when we were in like college, kind of to just like shit on everything. Oh, you don't know this, or you didn't read this, or you haven't, you've never heard of this band, like proving how interesting you were or how well read you were. And it wasn't just being excited and talking about this thing you read, it was, oh, you don't know, or I know more than you. I'm so over that. I got into such a snobbery phase of anything and it's not fun you know like no. i don't want to compete and i and i i see the remnants of it and i don't know about the younger generations you know years younger than us or whatever but i see the remnants of it with with like my generation of people who like want to be like oh you haven't seen this but then they're still kind of like oh but wait you you watch this thing too so do i like get excited about it instead of like I do it better than you. It's so boring. If anything, I'm sometimes Im impressed that people haven't seen things. I'm like, wow, you haven't seen a single Marvel? Yeah. I'm impressed. Yeah. I yeah. don't know how. But then it's or, like, I've not seen, like, I've I've seen six episodes of Game of Thrones. Yeah. <laughs> like, or or people, like, will start to talk about something they like, and they'll be like, oh, it's, I mean, it's stupid, but like this and i'm like you know because they're so ready for people to be like oh, you're so dumb it's like do you like it awesome i'm want to hear you talk about being excited that's my favorite thing to do is getting excited watching people get excited about something i i encourage everyone to first of all stop poo-pooing your own interests yeah yes people are we're getting into bird watching now right we yes. make our sourdough. I have a farm. It's three tomato plants. Um, <laughs> I'm excited about it. And I spent a whole year. I did. I, we did our own kombucha for two years. Yeah. <laughs> Natalie took up embroidery and does her every month or something. Every day of. Oh month. yeah, my. Yep. I'm so behind. I know what I have to stitch, but I'm so behind on my thread journal yeah. for this year. It's not even funny. Thread journal. That's what it's called. But like, how lame is it for me to be like seriously embroidery? That's so fucking weird. Anyway, I'm doing this like. Fuck off. I I don't embroider. That's so cool. Get excited. God, you people. Sorry. This is my discovery for this week. Get excited. Get excited about other people's excitement. And oh, I, sorry, I'm on my soapbox right now. I feel like people are doing better now of like, you know what? I like this thing that is maybe weird or unusual and I'm into it. Or like, I know it's not for everyone, but I'm not going to count myself out I'm not going to like discount it as an interest before I start talking about it. I'm also not going to be like, well, I do this. So everyone should do this. I can't believe you don't do yeah. this. No, I fucking love when somebody asks for my help with something. Cause it's some weird niche thing that like, they know that I enjoy doing or that I'm good at. I feel like people think I have a lot of the same interests as them, but that's, it's not because 
no, you're, you're talking about a topic that I'm excited about the topic. I'm excited about watching you get excited about yeah. your thing. That's so fun for me. This entire podcast is just, I was like, I knew you were going to do music this, this time. And I was like, Cass is going to get really into it because it's a music topic. And I'm like, and I'm going to give her just a little, little bit of literature. <laughs> and then I'm going to get way too into it because I've been reading too much. And then oh. we're going to talk, we're going to get really soapboxy about nerding out. You know what? Actually, this segues very nicely into my very, <laughs> very stupid discovery. Give me what I, it. I wasn't sure what to do for a discovery today. I feel like I haven't done anything or seen anything. However, the other day when talking about a dumb thing that excites me, I found I found my discovery. There, one of my favorite movies of all time is Waitress. <gasps> It's yes. a great movie. I have it on DVD. I lent it to many people in college. I watched it many, many times. I'm intimately familiar with the trailers before the movie Waitress. One of which <laughs> a movie that Chris Pine's people have buried. I had it. I wound up finding it on YouTube, so I didn't have that hard of a time finding it. But like, you can't pay to, you cannot pay to watch this movie or stream this movie in a legal and responsible way. The, Chris Pine's people have buried this movie. It's not you can, it's not on Vudu, it's not on Amazon, it's not on iTunes. I found actually Louis Cordon found a uh a kind of shit quality with like I think Arabic subtitles of it on uh on YouTube. <laughs> and that is how I watched it on Friday night cuz I didn't have any plans and I have no regrets. This is a Chris Pine movie from 2006 called Blind Dating. Oh my God, I know this. And I had seen the trailer for this movie so many times and I've never, and every time I think about it, I go to just watch and I see if it's anywhere for me to watch it and it never is. So finally I was like, we're gonna find it, we're gonna watch it. And this is my review. It got 25% on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm shocked that anyone saw it to be able to rate it on rotten tomatoes it honestly isn't that bad this is 2006 it's a movie about a young blind man who is still a virgin played by chris pine who wants to find love it's a rom-com about a blind man it could be deeply problematic and at times it is but honestly my review would be it could have been so much worse his brother drives a limo, so there's that plot device of he gets to go. He's taken all these ladies in a limo. There's, there's, there's a sort of dating montage of all the terrible women his brother has sets him up with. For me, the funniest thing is the fact that his family is very Italian, but like, first of all, nobody's gonna believe Chris Pine is Italian, and secondly, he he doesn't like. The only reason you know that his family is Italian is because like the other actors and members of the character, like characters in the family have like aggressively Italian American stereotype things that they do at some point, but never Chris Pine's character and which, <laughs> because you would never believe that he's Italian. Um, so my discovery is 2006 Chris Pine vehicle, <laughs> blind dating. Vehicle. Okay. My favorite movie of all time is Joe Wright's 2005 Pride and Prejudice. Which I also I watched that on Thursday night. I have it on D. You know what? Have you ever seen the movie Phenomenon with Mel, B Mel Gibson and Julia yes. Roberts? Uh, he no, not Phenomenon. Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts. Mel Gibson is like a paranoid schizophrenic. And he is tasked to like follow Julia Roberts. And he has this weird thing about the book, The Catcher in the Rye. And anytime he sees it, he has to buy a copy. It's like this thing. Like, so I do it with Pride and Prejudice because I have so many copies. I have worn out DVDs. I've got like four copies right now. And I have the trailers memorized. And you saying that just made me think of On a Clear Day, which came out in, yep. oh, what year was it? 2005. And I just, it's about this man at the end of his rope who decides he's going to swim across the English Channel. And he's in his like 50s or 60s or something. And everyone thinks he's crazy. And he asks his like 
ragtag funny group of friends to help him out. And it's Billy Boyd who plays Pippin <gasps> and Bennett and Benedict Wong who's in <gasps> all the Doctor Strange. And I just remember the line of we're going to need an experienced pilot and definitely and just like I don't know. Those two if you watch you the trailer the you'll get it. You've just seen the trailer. I've seen the movie and the trailer, oh. but I've seen the trailer many more times. I quote it verbatim whenever it's on. Um <laughs> so go check out On a Clear Day. I think I remember it being pretty pretty cute. Brenda Blevins and actually quite a lot of people are in it. But yeah, it's um that's really good and I just got to uh think about Pride and Prejudice. You know what? I might go watch Pride and Prejudice. You guys, we're going to have to cut this off here because otherwise we're just going to play a massive game of, oh, do you know this guy was in that thing? Oh, he was also in this. And everything will come back to David Tennant. <laughs> uh, check out our social medias at Shared Pod. Um, that's on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, we're at Shared History on TikTok. Yes, Shared History on TikTok. We've got a YouTube channel, so all of this... You all know, of these trailers gonna... all of these trailers will be on there if you have any questions corrections or suggestions send those to shared history podcast at gmail.com natalie i'm wrapping this up quick because we cannot be trusted to not throw more bits in i have to take a nyquil to counteract the day quills <laughs> so, so until next time <laughs> share. share you later